I'd like to uh, uh, begin this talk this morning by saying something that I hope nobody has ever said from the pulpit of all souls and that we pray that nobody will ever say again, uh, which is that what you've just heard in the reading from the Holy Scripture is wrong and you shouldn't listen to it. Uh, but before Rico comes and rugby tackles me from the front, then let me explain a little bit. You see, what's happened in the narrative of the book of Job is this. Last week, we read through the prologue or the introduction, which was the first two chapters. Uh, we saw how Job was an upright and God-fearing man, but a man whom God allowed to suffer terribly. You'll remember that Satan wanted to test Job to see whether he only feared God as long as his life was going well for him. And so God allowed him to take away all of his possessions, of which he had many, his family, which was a big one, and even his health. But at the end of it all, Job responded rightly. He modeled the right response, which was to fear the Lord, irrespective of how life was going for him. And at the end of chapter 2, in a bit that we didn't read, three of Job's friends then turn up on the scene. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they come along uh, not to provide banter, to cheer Job up. This isn't a sort of lads get-together. They come to provide comfort in all his grief and suffering. These are three caring and genuine friends who come along. We're told in chapter 2, verse 13, that they were willing to sit with him in silence for a week and tear their clothes and join him in his grief. Only a real friend is willing to do that. But they are also there to provide counsel. And the three of them fancy themselves as heavyweight theologians. We're told that Eliphaz is a Temanite, uh, Bildad is a Shuhite, and Zophar a Namathite. We're not quite sure where all those places are exactly. Uh, but commentators think the implication is that these three friends come from three educated and respectable um, areas around the Middle East. They're a little bit like the original gangster three wise men, if I can put it that way. And so, after they sat with Job and they wept with him for seven days, which is what they do, they also want to work through everything with him pastorally, even if that involves having some hard and honest conversations together. These three friends are caring and honest and sincere and well-meaning and courageous men, in fact. The only problem with them is that they're wrong. The counsel that they give Job is consistently wrong. It's well-intentioned, but it's wrong. Or at least it's partly wrong. A lot of what they say is absolutely right. We read, we read Eliphaz's first speech earlier, and perhaps you were thinking that a lot of it sounded pretty sensible. But they make a crucial wrong assumption along the way, because they think that the reason that Job is suffering must be because he has sinned and God is disciplining him for it. And we, the readers, know that that's not right because we know from chapters 1 and 2 that Job was not to blame for his suffering. It was made very clear. And if we were in any doubt, right at the end of the book, God himself rebukes the three friends for what they have said. They are not right. And most of the book of Job is actually filled with this discussion that Job has with these three friends. You'll be pleased to know that we're not going to attempt to cover all of it uh, today, but it's important to see this discussion um, because we need to see how things can go wrong if our understanding of God isn't calibrated correctly. 
Remember that this book is primarily a book about God, not primarily a book about suffering. Its, its primary purpose is to help us understand God rightly, which it does through the lens of suffering. Although, of course, once we've got that locked in, then it will help us um, when suffering comes along immensely and a whole host of other areas of life as well. Now, Job is actually the one who breaks the silence in chapter 3, and he laments his agony. Just have a little look back on the previous page uh, to chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Job isn't cursing God here, remember. He knows that he can't do that. But that doesn't make the pain just magically disappear for Job. And so his speech expresses how overwhelming it all is, everything that he's faced, so overwhelming that he feels that it would be better simply to have never lived at all. It's possible when we read chapters 1 and 2 last week that Job came across as a bit of a sort of emotionless rock because the narrative is told in a kind of quite a matter-of-fact way. Well, now we're starting to get alongside Job and find out what it's really like to go through what he has gone through. And he gives this gut-wrenching speech throughout the rest of chapter 3. But now that Job has broken the silence himself, Eliphaz thinks that that's permission to begin the pastoral work and start having a conversation. Because he thinks that Job isn't right to lament the suffering that he's had. And we're going to focus on Eliphaz's speech, which we had read for us earlier. Have a look back at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? In other words, Job, we understand your pain, but we do need to talk about this. Um, Please do your best to be patient with me. Verse 3, think how you have instructed many, how your hands, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. Eliphaz is laying out his stall very carefully and slowly and gently, reminding Job that Job himself has helped to help others in this sort of situation in the past. But now here comes the hard truth that Eliphaz wants to ease into the conversation. Verse 7. Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. Who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever cut off? When you look around the world, Eliphaz says, the upright are the ones who stick around. Nobody perishes for doing the right thing. If you work with integrity, you can expect to stay secure in your job. Whereas, by contrast, those who plough evil and sow trouble, well, they reap it, don't they? What goes around comes around. Consider the world of politics, for example. There's only so long you can get away with a scandal before it gets sniffed out. And our friends across the square have a field day as they report it to the whole world with glee. You might be able to fiddle the way that you claim expenses, for example, but eventually there's going to be a big exposure and you'll reap what you sowed. There's some truth to what Eliphaz is saying, isn't there? Mark Twain apparently once said that if you always tell the truth, you don't need to remember what you said. Because you're secure, you have nothing to fear. Whereas if you're spinning lies and sowing trouble, 
Well, you'd better watch out. And then Eliphaz adds a theological interpretation to his observation in verse 9. He says, at the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. It's not a coincidence when those who sow trouble reap it, he says. When evildoers do eventually get discovered, we can deduce that the work of the Almighty is behind it all. He is the one who ensures the downfall of the wicked, so says Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz is being very uh, British and using subtext here, but uh, do you see what he's implying? If it's true that evildoers get blasted by the anger of the Lord, well, you just look at your situation, Job, and connect the dots together. And then Eliphaz adds what he thinks is the trump card in all of this, and he presents it in the form of a sort of epiphany that he's had in the night. We'll skip down to verse 17. He says... Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth? Do you see the logic of what he's saying? Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? Of course not. No one can possibly be more righteous than God himself is. It's a no-brainer. Even the angels can't keep up with God's standards, Eliphaz points out. How much less those who live in houses of clay, us. And so therefore, if disaster strikes, well, what can man say? No one is pure in God's sight. Therefore, nobody can say I'm innocent and God is treating me unfairly. Skip on to chapter 5, verse 1. Call if you will, but who will answer you? To who? To which of the holy ones will you turn? If no one is more righteous than God and God has brought this suffering about in your life, Job, then you have no choice but to admit that there must have been some foul play in what you have done yourself. But Eliphaz doesn't want to finish there. He wants a much more constructive end to this conversation. And so in the rest of chapter 5, he makes a few helpful suggestions. Verse 8. But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles which cannot be counted. Here's what you need to do, Job. Come back to God. Say sorry for what you've done. Because God is a great and wonderful God, full of mercy and compassion, who works wonders throughout the earth. In fact, verse 17, blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. It may be, Job, that this is all actually a blessing in disguise. Because the discipline of the Almighty is a good thing in the long run. God is probably working for your good in all of this. And then he adds this line at the end of chapter 5, which is a sort of classic power play. Verse 27, he says, we have examined this and it is true. So hear it and apply it to yourself. In other words, the church leaders all agree that what I've said is right. So you better apply this to yourself unless you want to be labeled as ungodly and a troublemaker. And I imagine Eliphaz probably thinks he smashed it at this point. He's been sympathetic. He's gently exposed where the problem is. He's given a careful theological answer. He's made some constructive suggestions. 
and he's applied just the right amount of pressure at the end to make sure that Job takes seriously what he's saying. Job done. Or Job done, perhaps, he's thinking. There had to be a pun in there somewhere. Don't groan. It was necessary at some point. There won't be any more. Don't worry. The problem is, is that Eliphaz is wrong. Because we know that Job hasn't sinned to deserve this suffering. And so from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 31 of the book, what we get is this sort of to-and-fro conversation between Job and the other friends as they try to wrestle through the question of whether Job deserves his suffering or not, sort of going round and round in circles. Job is frustrated, and he's in mental anguish. He's sure that he's done nothing wrong. But the friends apply more and more pressure, and they try to get him to confess. Bildad steps up and he has a go, but Job won't budge. Then Zophar has a go, then Eliphaz again, and so on. Until eventually you get to chapter 32 and they sort of reach an impasse. And basically the friends don't change their tune because their framework about God and how he works in this world dictates that Job must have sinned to deserve this suffering, even if he's not aware of it. All that happens is that they get more and more insistent. Zophar even suggests that God hasn't punished Job as much as he deserves. It's hard to think how he could have punished him more, given that even Satan was out of ideas. And the friends end up heaping more and more mental suffering on top of the physical suffering that Job has already faced. This is what can happen when our view of God isn't quite calibrated correctly. This is why it matters. But the thing that we need to understand about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar is that they do start in the right place. So we do need to be clear about what it is that they're trying to defend and then how they go wrong with it all. I suggested last week that reading through uh, the book of Job is a little bit like walking a tightrope between two wrong options. Uh, one wrong option is to conclude that God is unjust for sending this calamity upon Job. And that's the Um, conclusion that the friends resist strongly. And actually, the friends are right to resist that conclusion. The friends are right that God is just. They're very keen that Job doesn't fall off that side of the tightrope. And this truth was right at the heart of Eliphaz's epiphany in the first speech, wasn't it? Mortal man is never more righteous than God. It's simply not possible. It's the truth that they keep coming back to again and again throughout the rest of the book. Does the Almighty pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right, Bildad says in chapter 8? Can you probe the limits of God? Are they not higher than the heavens and deeper than the depths, Zophar says in chapter 11? Because, of course, the creature can't possibly be more righteous than the Creator. So the friends are right to insist that God is always more righteous and just than humanity. It can't possibly be the case that Job is righteous and that God isn't righteous. They want to make absolutely sure that Job doesn't fall off the tightrope in that direction and ends up concluding that God is unfair. And actually, it's quite refreshing in a culture that thinks that it's free to tell God that he's a moral monster, isn't it? Many of you remember that interview that Stephen Fry gave a couple of years ago that went viral, uh, where he said that if God existed, he must be a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God because of all the suffering that happens in the world. Now, obviously, what Stephen wanted us to conclude was, therefore, God doesn't exist. But he ought to have spent a little bit more time with Eliphaz, because then he and the other friends would have told him 
that for all his emotional zeal, he was fighting a straw man. Because if God does exist, Stephen Fry wouldn't be in a position to call him a mean-minded and stupid God. Because his very ability to determine right and wrong must have come from God himself. So if God is a stupid and mean-minded creature, a mean-minded God, then he must be an even more stupid and mean-minded creature, and so are the rest of us. Because what high ground can the creature stand on to tell the creator that he is in the wrong? It doesn't work. God is necessarily more righteous and just than any of us are. And this is Eliphaz's point. And if we push this a little further, we realize that the friends understand something very deep about the God of the Bible. In fact, everything crumbles if we don't start on the same foundation as them, that God is a just and righteous God. The friends are right in this. God is in the business of vindicating those who do the right thing and bringing evildoers to heal. Psalm 34, for example, says, The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut them off from the face of the earth. In fact, the shape of the narrative of the whole Bible is basically this. That God saw that the world had gone wrong, that the humanity had corrupted it in Genesis 3. And ever since then, he's had a plan to judge all evil, to renew the heavens and the earth, to raise from the dead all who have sought after him rightly. In the new creation, we will celebrate the justice of God. That he has triumphed over all evil and that good has won the day. Isn't this what the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is about? A first taste of the great act of justice that God is going to do for the whole of creation. This is the gospel, is it not? This is why we're here. This is what we get up for on a Sunday morning. This is what energizes us for every new day as Christians. That God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him on high above every authority. And that he has done this so that one day the whole world will submit to the just and loving and righteous rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, as Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. I think Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar would have said amen and amen to all of that. Our God is not a passive, useless God. He is a God who is committed to seeing good flourish and evil thwarted. That is his plan for the world. And actually, many of us would do well to listen to the three friends because there are all sorts of ways in which we are tempted to think that God is unfair and unjust. Audrey and I were very struck during lockdown that several friends who had been Christians for many years talked about how hard they were finding it to trust God because he had made life so difficult for them. The implication was that if we can't see a rhyme or reason why a particular hardship has come along, then God must be the one who's being very unfair. Maybe you felt something of that during lockdown as well. Or perhaps it isn't a particular hardship that's befallen you. Perhaps it's a lack of blessing that you think that God should be giving you. Again, it's easy to get into a mindset that God sort of owes us one, isn't it? Especially if we've been good church-going Christians for a long time now. It's easy to slip into a mindset that says, well, come on, God, I've served you in X, Y, and Z ways for many years at church. Now it's time that you rewarded me in the following, in the following ways. It's time that you gave me deeper friendships, a husband or a wife, 
more compassion from my spouse, enough money for a deposit on a flat, you fill in the blanks, whatever it is that you think God owes you by this point. And sometimes it's frightening how quickly our minds can accuse God of being unfair in all of this. And a good healthy dose of Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar might be exactly what we need to get us started. As they sit us down and they remind us sternly that man can never be more righteous than God. It's just not possible. He always does what is just and we're the ones who are limited, not he. However, the friends are wrong. Oh, too far. The friends are wrong that Job has sinned. This is where they've gone wrong. Because the problem is, is that in their enthusiasm to hold up the justice of God, they've leaned over the other side of the tightrope and ended up insisting that Job must be unrighteous and must have done something to provoke God's anger. Because as far as they can see, it has to be one or the other. If Job is innocent, then that must mean God is unfair for punishing him, which can't be right. So therefore, Job can't be innocent. And the problem is that's just too simplistic. They're right that God's goal for creation is to punish the wicked and vindicate the righteous. But where they've gone wrong is they've assumed that every calamity or hardship along the way that befalls a person can be chalked up to the judgment of God. And the point is, it's not that simple. You just can't draw a straight line from any kind of suffering and deduce that it must be God's punishment in a person's life. And I think the reason that this discussion goes round and round in circles for chapters and chapters is because we're supposed to see how badly wrong things can go if our view of God is too simplistic, even if it starts on the right foundation like they do. This is why it's worth going back and reading through all the bits that we're going to skip over um, before the before next week. You'll see that the friend's words get harsher and harsher the more that they try to get Job to confess that he's done something wrong. In their zeal to make God just, they end up heaping false accusations on Job for chapter after chapter. And all it does is to drive him to more and more despair because he just can't make sense of God. And so having sat down with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and allowed them to remind us that God is always just when we're wondering whether he's fair or not, we need to politely excuse ourselves from the conversation with them when they start going too far. Because if we're not careful, we'll end up thinking that God must be punishing us when something goes wrong. He might be. It's the wrong conclusion to draw that God will never use hardship to discipline someone in their lives. There are examples of that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But he might not be. And if we start thinking that he must be punishing if hardship comes, then our understanding of him will start to erode very, very quickly and go in some desperate directions. Well, we're about halfway through um, our series in Job, and uh, we're still at the point where we haven't quite got to the answer of the book. Um, and we've seen how there are two uh, wrong ways to fall off the tightrope, either to think that God is uh, wrong or to think that Job is in the wrong. And you might be thinking, well, what's the right answer then? Uh, you know, what do we need to think to stop falling off one way or the other? Especially if you come here uh, this morning and you you feel like you're carrying a heavy burden. Plenty of us are wrestling with suffering at the moment. And may I ask us all just to be a bit more patient because we, we're getting there and we need to let this book take us to the answer in its own time. But what we can take away from all of this is that God's justice isn't simplistic. 
He is always just and righteous, but the way that works out in our world isn't simplistic. And we need to beware drawing straight lines where, in fact, it's a lot more complicated. There are various ways that we could apply this further, but to finish with, I want to make an observation about how important this lesson becomes as we read on through the Bible and into the New Testament. I have no idea whether the author of the book of Job had any inkling of this or not, but Job is not the only righteous person who will suffer in the Bible's narrative. It turns out that the idea of an innocent sufferer is much more integral to God's salvation plan for the world than perhaps anybody imagined. So getting this lesson clear becomes more important as we read on. If our view of God's justice is too simplistic, then we'll come across a problem when we see Jesus hanging on the cross. Because we'll either conclude that God is punishing him justly for some wrongdoing that he has done, Or we'll conclude that God is a monster for punishing an innocent man. But neither of those are true. Actually, it's an outworking of God's love that it happens this way. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. One wonders what Eliphaz would have made of that. God is more just than any human, but his justice is not simplistic. Right at the heart of the gospel is an act that at face value looks unjust if Jesus is innocent. But it is actually the outworking of a greater loving plan of God that will involve a greater vindication of Jesus in the end. God's justice isn't simple, but it does work in the end. Why don't we pray to finish?